the weather is really hot, so young children and and older people are really suffering with dehydration. It's it's just a, a really hard scenario. You, you can see on social media that people are putting photos of their babies, putting them in the fridge, you know, newborn babies, just so they could get a bit of colder weather. Iraq's summer is crippling the country. People seek refuge indoors to escape scorching temperatures that regularly reach 50 degrees Celsius. But indoors, it isn't any better. Regular power blackouts are adding to people's frustrations. So, aside from shade within the four walls of their houses, there's little else that Iraqis can do to cool themselves down. Electricity in the country is scant, and whatever little there is, it's rationed into small organized time slots each day. A 24-hour power supply is a dream. You're listening to Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Sohail Akram. And on this week's episode, we're asking whether Iraq's power problem has any end in sight. Before we start, please make sure to subscribe to Beyond the Headlines to get the latest episodes. I always say there is a, a loop and uh, like a sort of uh, rotation of events that happens in Iraq every year, even before the October uprising and and before the like the big protests that got really famous, Iraqis have this pattern of like electricity is going to be bad at the summer. This is Heather Hussein, an Iraqi journalist for the National based in Baghdad. You heard him at the start of this episode talking about people putting their children into refrigerators to help them cool down. The summers in Iraq are blistering hot, and every year the population gets ready to face them without the modern conveniences many people around the world take for granted. The most vulnerable, the elderly and small babies, are most at risk from overheating. This caused a father in Iraq to put his baby in the fridge for a few minutes to help ease the heat. And these are people who are fortunate enough to have expensive shared or private generators to keep their fridges running. Although a costly option, a necessity for anyone who can afford it. I have eight amps in, on, on the private generator. I can, I can run one AC, which is in my office. And uh, my apartment gets really hot everywhere else. So whenever they, the general electricity comes, I need to turn on the other AC, turn on the water cooler, turn on the water pump, wash some clothes, and uh, just have my fingers crossed before it turns off and I didn't do any of these. And when it does, I have to do my run back around the house again, turning off the things that I turned on. And uh, yeah, we keep, we keep living in that, apparently. Haider has known an Iraq with power blackouts for as long as he can remember. Something the Iraqi society has had to live with for decades. People can't go out and protest because it's uh, 48 plus degrees outside. So they wait until August, September, October to protest. And this has been happening since 2008, 2009, just because the people had a bit of hope after 2003, the things might have changed from, from what they are. The hope after the 2003 US-led invasion which toppled Saddam Hussein was that of a new Iraq. The 1991 Gulf War had severely damaged the country's infrastructure. The sanctions during the time of Saddam Hussein worsened the state of the country's electrical infrastructure. And as the political uncertainty and economic decline grew over the years, the power infrastructure was never fixed or even upgraded. 
The fighting against ISIS meant a fifth of the network was rendered inoperable. For a generation of Iraqis like Haider, growing up without a reliable power source is a part of daily life. Since I was a child, I, I always remember my mom or my grandma screaming that we need to turn off the water pump or someone need to turn off something and people running around the house when, when the electricity cuts off so it won't cut off again and again. What I see now on, on the street is that the people are fed up and frustrated of doing the same thing every year and going back and doing it and nothing is happening. And there is no outcome of their efforts towards it. So lots of people are just accepting the hard fact that we, we might just stay like this. The country might stay like this for a really long time unless there is a fix. The fix would need to come from the government one that has faced much instability. Instability, it seems, that cannot be overcome by the fact that Iraq is Middle East's second largest producer of oil, second only to Saudi Arabia, and globally the sixth largest. It would be expected that a country so rich in oil would be able to compete for lifestyle with its Gulf neighbors. But there have been occasions when even the hospitals and airports haven't had a main power supply for hours. An average Iraqi has to organize his life around the fates of the electricity grid. So what's amiss? Ali al-Safar is the Middle East and North Africa program manager at the International Energy Agency. A large part of this is because the Iraqi uh, Ministry of Electricity relies solely on the federal budget to finance its, uh, its capital expenditures. And as we know, because Iraq is an oil-dependent state, that expenditure... Uh, is completely beholden to what the the Iraqi government gets in revenue. The Iraqi government is completely beholden to the oil price that prevails on the day. So what happens is, is the revenue goes up and down, and therefore the expenditure for the Ministry of Electricity also goes up and down. And it's nowhere near the levels that it needs to be at. In 2018, for example, the capital expenditure for the Ministry of Electricity came in around $2.5 billion. We, in, in, in our estimation in, in the International Energy Agency, um, show that there's, there needs to be somewhere around a tripling of that investment if Iraq is to be able to put on the kind of electricity system that uh, would provide secure, uh, predictable, and affordable electricity to its people. Aside from the investments, there are other problems. Yasser al-Maliki is a Gulf analyst at the Middle East Economic Survey. Iraq was always reactive rather than proactive in terms of the development. The other problem that Iraq has within the sector is that it is commercially unprofitable. So it is what I like to call as a bottomless pit. So Iraq throws so much money on um, the sector, but then recoups um, none in, in, in reality. The other day, Iraq's Minister of Oil, who is also the head of the uh, Energy Ministerial Council, was saying um, we, we recoup less than $10 for every megawatt hour that we uh, produce. And this has to do with uh, lacking collection, a heavily subsidized uh, electricity tariff, and also the fact that the feedstock that you use for 
generation turbines and infrastructures also subsidized. So there is a double subsidy there. And of course, you add to this mismanagement and lack of planning. The problem that Iraq is chasing a mirage in terms of um, demand. So it's chasing something that is annually increasing. It's not spending money in the right place in terms of uh, generation versus distribution, given the losses. And most importantly, Iraq is not developing its gas fast enough. That's a long list of problems facing the country. Iraq has spent billions of dollars on its electricity sector over the last two decades, but it hasn't seen a viable solution. There are countless problems in Iraq which need monetary investment, and its only revenue is oil. But there's another issue which Iraq has to contend with. Bob Tolas is assistant foreign editor at The National and has specialized in Iraq since 2011. A lot of the problem in Iraq really is that ministries are divided internally by political parties. Some of those parties are using um, different sectors like electricity to generate revenues um, for themselves illegally. Um, and, and really... What you have is, is a bureaucracy that doesn't respond to a crisis like peak summer electricity demand in Iraq um, because they're so factionalized. Uh, and that's a really hard problem to solve. Aside from this corruption, Ali Al Safar explains there are those that benefit from the state of Iraq being dependent on generators. Well, it's clear there are people financially benefiting from Iraq's uh, electricity crisis. There's a gap between supply and demand. More precisely, there's a gap between government supply and total demand. And part of that gap is met by local neighborhood generators. Now, these local neighborhood generators provide quite essential services to households, especially in peak summer months. Households that can afford uh, to pay for this electricity get, um, get an additional level of, of service provision. But at the same time, if you look at how much that costs, it's, you know, in a word, it's extortionate. In, in the summer months, a typical uh, kind of household in, in Baghdad might be looking to pay 25,000 Iraqi dinars per ampere of electricity. When we did the calculations uh, to see what that translates to, it translates to $1,300 per megawatt hour. Now, when you consider the fact that renewables auctions in Portugal last year brought in uh, bids of somewhere in the region of $13 per megawatt hour. There is no reason why a neighborhood generator in Iraq should be paying or should be capturing 100 times more than what was offered at auction for renewables last year. It's unconscionable. Now, in, in our estimation, uh, in the International Energy Agency's estimation, these local neighborhood generators brought in revenue of around $4 billion in 2018. So they're capturing a, a lot of revenue, especially when you compare that to the size of the, the, the expenditure that the Ministry of Electricity is able to make. In 2018, the Ministry of Electricity had $2.5 billion in revenue. In other words, the Ministry of Electricity is, or the, the neighborhood generators are capturing one and a half times what is available to the Ministry of Electricity. So, uh, I mean, I, I, I have no specific evidence of this, but one would imagine that when there are those levels of revenues at stake, uh, that, that, that there are vested interests that are, uh, uh, who, whose interests lie in, in the status quo. 
The status quo of a decrepit power grid is also explained by a number of attacks that have occurred on the country's electricity infrastructure. The Iraqi government has blamed terrorist groups and ISIS has claimed responsibility for some of them. But many of these acts are committed by unknown groups. Here's Ali again. Well, I can't speak to who these groups might be. But I can say generally, the single surest way to discredit a government in Iraq is to target the electricity uh, provision. Because this is a constant reminder to every Iraqi household that there is a failure there. Uh, in other words, when there are multiple blackouts in a day felt by every household across the country, it's a, you know, it's, it's a constant reminder that their needs are not being met. So anybody looking to discredit the government could target that. To exacerbate all these failings and misfortunes, Iraq's power needs increase by around 7-10% to 10% every year. On top of that, there are losses that occur across the country's electricity grid due to the circuits being old. Estimates suggest between 30 and 50%. Yasser feels the government isn't treating the real issue. So what you get in your house is basically 70% of whatever is being produced. And that has to do with what they call as technical and commercial losses. Well, the Iraqis have focused onto one side of this problem, which is generation. Um, so the spending has mostly been there, building more and more plants, because they think if we can build more plants, then we can produce more electricity. But then 70% of that is lost on the distribution side. So they haven't really looked into distribution where they should be doing most of the um, reconstruction, most of the uh, plans to rehabilitate that sector. But again, there are political priorities in the country. Opening a power plant, a shiny one, usually draws media, draws attention, while you know getting a electricity cable, which is hanging in the middle of the streets, underground is not something that would be quite media trendy, I would say. Ali thinks the problem needs much more investment. When uh, you visit uh, you know, Baghdad or uh, any of Iraq's provinces, in fact, uh, and you go around the streets, you can see uh, the distribution lines, they're above ground, and often they sack. And that uh, is, is already kind of a visual representation of the fact that there's going to be quite large losses. Um, this needs kind of a total refurbishment, a, a total rethink. Uh, and significant levels of investment. Failing the levels of investment needed, Iraq has been importing gas and electricity from Iran for many years. This helped alleviate some of the burden on Iraq's power grid, but the country has been struggling to pay its bills since 2018. With billions of dollars unpaid at the end of June 2021, right in the middle of the summer, Iran cut off its power supply to Iraq. There were calls to protest across the country with demonstrators issuing threats of escalation in Basra, the oil-rich city in southern Iraq. Although just over a week later, an agreement was reached between the two countries. The issue of power supply is not just isolated to Iraq. Iran has also been struggling to meet the needs of its own population. Yasser explains. First of all, demand kind of peaked early into the year, and this is, and this is not something that's un uncommon. So we have seen this throughout the uh, the region. So in Kuwait and Qatar and Oman and other places, it's becoming drier, it's becoming hotter. But 
The idea is Iran always claimed that it had a nameplate capacity of 85 gigawatts. But you have um, recently someone um, called Mustafa Rajabi Mashhadi, who is the industry spokesperson um, in Iran, said, well, Iran is facing very hard, very hard days. And he came up with, with figures. He said, now the gap that we have between supply and demand is around 11 gigawatts. So he put supply at 54 gigawatts, which is around 63% of that nameplate capacity. Now, there are a plethora of problems to look at here for Iran. So there is climate change, there are sanctions, um, and also there are poor operating uh, conditions. So like Iraq, Iran is also having a aging infrastructure problem. And like Iraq, it's under sanctions. So it cannot bring in uh, foreign investments to its power sector or any other sectors. Uh, it's harder for Iran to get spare parts. The weather is becoming quite a drier. So um, uh, I think President Rouhani or somebody in the in the in the cabinet was saying, um, "Well, it's 50% more drier this year. Um, hydropower makes a good portion of Iran's uh, capacity, around 15% at." 13 gigawatts, and they have lost 50% of that just in May. And there's a draw of the Iran power company, national power company, which is Tabanair, to ban, for instance, uh, Bitcoin mining, because they thought that that was consuming around 500 to 600 megawatts. So they were trying to do everything within their power to, to reduce consumption. Iran has suffered under U.S. sanctions for decades. The reprieve that was given under the Iran nuclear deal in 2015 was taken away when Donald Trump broke the agreement by again issuing sanctions against the country. Although President Biden has promised to rejoin the pact, it's still elusive. Hardliner Ibrahim Raisi was elected Iran's president in June 2021, putting further pressure on negotiations. Here is Bob again. The Bashar reactor uh, was a late 1970s project under the Shah of Iran. Um, after the Islamic Revolution in 1979, um, that was stalled for a while because of the Iran-Iraq War. In fact, it was attacked during the Iran-Iraq War prior to its completion. In the 1990s, um, the, the Iranians brought in uh, Russian contractors to finish work. Originally, it was a German project. Uh, because of all of these delays, it's probably one of the most expensive nuclear power plants in the world. I think it cost $11 billion to construct. So if you're looking at the electricity uh, deficit um, in Iran, and that's only one side of what the Iranians spent on their nuclear program, you know, the other side of it, of course, is underground centrifuge facilities in the tanks in Fordor, you know, they're built within mountains. These are very, very expensive projects. And estimates range between 7 billion and 30 billion for that project and their Iranian government estimates. So when you put that together, um, those funds could easily have been funneled into electricity infrastructure. You know, they could have replaced some of the hydroelectricity infrastructure, which has um, reduced generation because of the drought uh, this year. So those funds that were spent on the nuclear program, I think, could easily have gone into um, electricity generation. But obviously, um, the regime in Tehran has decided that that's, that's something that they, they need. With its neighbors struggling with its own power shortages, what are the viable options for Iraq? It cannot keep up its payments to Iran, it doesn't have a steady revenue to solve the crumbling infrastructure, and with instability, mismanagement, and corruption, 
the likelihood of steady investment on repairing and rebuilding seems unlikely. Elections are due in October, but do they offer any hope? Here is what Ali Al-Safar thinks. I haven't even seen a list of potential prime ministerial candidates, let alone candidates for the Ministry of Oil and the Ministry of Electricity. So it's difficult to say whether the next government will be better or worse for this sector than this government is. But what I can say is that the type of policies that are required for the electricity sector are better served if uh, they look at the long term. In other words, a government that is stable and that can last its four or five year term will probably do better than kind of a piecemeal government that keeps collapsing on itself uh, and sees a change in, uh, in figures um, before, before the end of its term. And so that being said, if the next government is stable, then regardless of, of you know, who it is that's leading it, it could be that it has more success in implementing a longer-term strategy for the electricity sector, which is so badly needed. Haider has very little hope from the new government. The problem in, in, in Iraq that the people are running the, the people running for the elections are the same people who were ruling the country for the past, uh, like since two thousand three till now. It's the same faces who who led this country to where it is to its state right now, and having hope for change in 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 the election is not really. A valid option because it it could it needs more time and it needs more than just an election it needs an a whole infrastructure for the country to go back to its functional and livable circumstances. Other than that, the elections it's just going to be voting and the people who were elected before will be re-elected and and they will they will rule the country again with with the similar with similar actions of what they did fake deals and promises that will never be fulfilled. And for those who are having to live daily with a lack of power, what are the options? Here's Haider again. People in Iraq always found their their way around trouble that they faced in here. Like during the, the sanctions time in the 90s, people adjusted immediately their meals and and their candles and, and the light, like... Uh, oil light bulbs that will that will light their houses because there was no electricity at that time and i think people can adjust now they found their their ways around around the heat in 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 uh, by like i don't know there is people who are buying like you can see in every intersection in back that uh, this is what i'm realizing people buying small swimming pool, swimming pools like the inflatable ones and the uh, you can you can see that very common on social media that people just have it in their living room and they're sitting in it because it's really hot. Yeah, there's there's lots of different ways that people cope with the heat, but it wouldn't last for long because the people are already angry about it and they want to they want to do something about it. But it's really hot outside, and this is where where the loop I talked about comes, where people will wait out the the heat till it goes down to the 30s or beginning of 40s and they, they will go out and, and protest demanding services and uh, livable circumstances. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines. I've been your host, Suhail Akram. Thanks this week to Ali Al-Safar, Yasser Al-Maliki, Haider Hosseini and Bob Tolas. This week's episode was produced by Aisha Khan and Arthur Edison 
with additional reporting from Mina Aldrubi and James Haynes Young. If you have enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you have time to leave a review, we would love to know what you think.